National Security This Week, a weekly look at issues affecting America's security concerns, is brought to you by the Cybersecurity Summit. Check out their website at cybersecuritysummit.org for a list of their upcoming webinar series. And now, your host, John Olson. Good morning, everyone. It's Wednesday, and you've joined us for this edition of National Security This Week. We get together every Wednesday at 9 a.m. to discuss national security, and we're fortunate enough to be joined by guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and from across the nation to help us learn more about national security challenges and opportunities. Sometimes we're joined by guests from around the world, and today our guest is joining us from Australia. So we are actually pre-recording this show at 6 a.m. Central Time here in the United States, uh, and our guest John Blacksland is sitting in Australia, and it's about 11 p.m. his time. And we'll play this show in the normal time slot. A quick note before we get started, my friend Eric Sanderson over in Seattle uh, sent me a text message a little while ago uh, saying that this uh, show, National Security This Week, the podcast, was the featured podcast on his service. So we are on podcast services if you have an interest in listening to the show as a recording. For today's show, we're going to be taking an in-depth look at Australia, one of the most important strategic allies the United States has in the Western Pacific and Indian Ocean. We're going to look at security through the lens of the Australians. When you're living down under, as they say, looking north into the Western Pacific and the Indian Ocean, you see many security challenges, but you also see many opportunities. We're going to explore both in discussions this morning. Our guest today is Dr. John Blacksland. Dr. John Blacksland is Professor of International Security and Intelligence Studies at the Strategic and Defense Studies Center at Australian National University. He's also a senior fellow of the Higher Education Academy and a fellow of the Royal Society of New South Wales. In addition, he's a member of the Australian Army Journal editorial board and an occasional commentator in the media. John holds a doctorate in war studies from the Royal Military College of Canada and a Master of Arts in History from Australian National University and a Bachelor of Arts from the University of New South Wales. He's also a graduate of the Royal Thai Army Command and Staff College and the Royal Military College at Duntroon, which, as I understand, is roughly the equivalent of the U.S. Military Academy at West Point here in the United States. Dr. Blacksland has extensive experience in the intelligence community, including, including as the principal intelligence staff officer for the Australian Brigade in East Timor in September of 1999, as an, and also as an intelligence exchange officer in Washington, D.C., as well as director of the Joint Intelligence Operations, uh, the J-2, at Headquarters Joint Operations Command with Australia, and as a lead author of the three-volume history of the Australian Circuit Intelligence Organization. He also served during his career as Australia's defense attache to Thailand and Myanmar. Dr. Blackson is widely published, and his research covers the intelligence and security arms of government. He also covers Australian military history and strategy. He looks at defense studies, at military operations, and international relations, notably with Southeast Asia and North America, to include Canada and the United States. Dr. John Blacksland, welcome to National Security This Week. John, great to be with you. Thanks very much for inviting me on the program. What a pleasure to reach across the Pacific and engage with you on this amazing technology that we're sharing this morning. I really do appreciate the fact that you're staying up late to uh, to pre-record this show with me. Uh, the 17-hour time zone difference that we have between Minnesota and, and, uh, and Sydney is, is a, quite a significant thing to uh, overcome. But as you said, the technology is making all of this possible for us. Uh, Dr. Blackson, we have a lot to cover this morning. There's so many things I want to ask you. Uh, why don't we go ahead and get started? 
to begin with, if I, if I were to ask you to summarize what Australia's top security concerns are right now, uh, how, how would you respond? What, what nations or crisis points or situations are of the greatest concern from Australia's perspective? Yes, yeah, so great question. Um, and I'll, I would answer referring to a paper I wrote a little while ago called a geostrategic SWOT analysis for Australia. And the SWOT is a you know, business concept where you look at the internal strengths and weaknesses and external opportunities and threats. And what I did is I applied it geostrategically to Australia's broad circumstances. And uh, I was working through a long list of all these strengths and weaknesses and opportunities and threats. And I, I presented it to my wife and I said, look, how, aren't you impressed? You'd look at how good this is. And she said, so what? She said, so what, John? And I said, dang, that hurts. That really. So I had to, I had to think a bit harder. And what I realized is I needed to distill this further. And in distilling it, I came up with this um, an overlapping Venn diagram of great power contestation, looming environmental catastrophe, and a spectrum of governance challenges, all within a context of the fourth industrial revolution, mm. which is accelerating the trends on all of those fronts. And that manifests itself in a series of challenges, uh, which for Australia, uh, geographically in Southeast Asia, in the Southwest Pacific, uh, in our relations with neighbours in uh, across the Indian Ocean as well, and of course, further afield with our traditional security partners and allies the United States, uh, the United Kingdom and beyond. And that's manifested itself in the, uh, the, quad, the quad partnership, the quadrilateral, quadrilateral uh, dialogue with India, Japan, Australia and the United States and the recently emerged AUKUS, uh, a, a technical agreement between Australia, the United Kingdom, the United States. Along the way, you know, we've, we've managed to, we need to offend a lot of people. <laughs> we've put we've put a lot of French noses out of joint. Uh, we've annoyed the Indonesians. We've annoyed neighbours across the Pacific. We're, we're, look, we're we're broadly speaking well-meaning people, but we're we're what, what I like to call WYSIWYG people. We're what you see is what you get. You know, we're not terribly subtle. We're not terribly uh, nuanced, and we're certainly not inscrutable. Unlike you know, some of our Asian neighbours, we, 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 we're not good at playing poker. You can read us like a book, you know. <laughs> um, so, but you, you asked me about uh, the crisis points or the situation of greatest concern for Australia. So I, I think that prism of great power contestation, environmental challenges and governance challenges and the technology that's accelerating all of that is driving a range of concerns. So we had a, a foreign policy white paper a couple of years ago um, come out and it was like, well, it looked like a scattergun approach because we're touched on everybody. You know, we're touching about all our neighbours in Southeast Asia, neighbours in the Southwest Pacific, our allied, you know, the United States, uh, the, the Five Eyes partners, you know, the, uh, the, the UK, New Zealand, uh, our, the Fire Power Defence Arrangement, kind of a bit of a historic, historical relic that still has relevance for our ties with uh, Malaysia and Singapore, along with New Zealand and the United Kingdom, a whole range of networks. And of course, the more recent ones with 
Japan and India that have emerged from their concerns over a rising authoritarian and uh, assertive and rule-breaking, rule-bending and breaking uh, uh, emergent power, central power in Asia, that is the People's Republic of China. So all of those leaves us with a long list, you know. So I grouped them in Southeast Asia and I grouped them in the Southwest Pacific. And when you think about Southeast Asia, obviously the most important one in that space is Indonesia. Australia is a country of 25 million people, you know, we're the size of continental United States, but we're a, a minnow when it comes to population, uh, largely because we don't have the Mississippi River Delta in the middle. We've got, you know, we've got the, <laughs> the stony desert, you know, it's really bone dry out there. Um, so we live essentially on the rim of the continent. Um, but for us, Indonesia is really critical, even though it seems a long way away, because um most of us live on the southeastern corner and the southern parts of the country. And Indonesia's, you know, to fly from Canberra, the capital, or from Sydney or Melbourne, you know, it's a six-hour flight before you cross the country, before you get to the, off the coast uh, to the north of Australia um, on your way to Asia. And, uh, and when you do, you cross, you get in East Timor and then you get in Indonesia. Um, now, this is a country that is it's like water and oil to Australia. It's so different. Uh, it's, you know, 10 times our population, literally 250 million people, a country that economically we used to be stronger and more powerful, but they're actually uh, overtaking us. Um, and let's not forget, this is a predominantly Muslim country. Now, it's a, it's a leading democracy. It's a rambunctious, messy democracy. Uh, and it's one over which we've had uh, a series of, you know, contentious issues to resolve. Um, in terms of not only the crisis over East Timor in 99, which I'm happy to elaborate on, but on uh, refugees, on uh, border or illegal border arrivals, um, demarcation of disputes and uh, disagreements on a range of very sensitive issues inside Indonesia, which, you know, in, in a democracy like ours, you, you get protest groups want to you know, complain about uh, the prosecution of West Papuans or the suppression of women's rights or whatever in inside Indonesia. And the Indonesians get completely offended by these upstart, you know, uh, uh, people down south who look like the Dutch colonial masters of old, you know. So we're, we, 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 we clod hop our way around our engagement with Indonesia, not realising how we cause offence inadvertently along the way. So Indonesia, main one is Southeast Asia. And then in the Pacific, obviously Papua New Guinea, a big country. It, 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 after the First World War, Australia was given a League of Nations mandate to, to govern uh, on an interim basis, uh, Papua New Guinea. And of course, we then did that. And then we fought in the, in the Pacific War in that space alongside the United States. Um, and uh, so PNG is very important. But of course, the other one's really important is Fiji and Solomon Islands. Solomon Islands, it kind of, it fell between the cracks in our consciousness for a long time. We forget that the Battle of Guadalcanal got fought in the middle of Solomon Islands. Right. Honiara, the, cap, the capital of, uh, of, of Solomon Islands, is its airport is, is Henderson Airfield, Guadalcanal. That was where the battle, why? Because it was right smack in the middle of the lines of communication between Australia and North America. Yeah. Um, but, you know, so there we have it. We've got a range of issues. And, of course, 
uh, domestically, politically, there's a big debate. How much emphasis do you put on uh, great power issues? How much to put on, on environmental issues? And how much do you deal with corruption and governance and terrorism and other problems in the region? Sure. Oh, it's a long list. John, you sound like somebody who has studied history a little bit. <laughs> I am a bit of a history buff, John. <laughs> yeah. John you're absolutely right. Yeah. Uh, let's drill down a little bit more on that uh, relationship with Indonesia, if we could, uh, for this uh, mm. for this next question. Uh, a little deeper analysis, maybe, on the Australia-Indonesia relationship. I, I mean, is it, does do Australians look at Indonesia as an actual military threat or uh, not so much? Is it an economic opportunity for trade? Uh, what 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 sort of the driving factors in that relationship between Australia and Indonesia? Yeah, so historically, back uh, in the middle of the Cold War, um, during the kind of end of the colonial colonial era, when uh, Indonesia had been independent for uh, about twenty years, uh, but Malaysia was getting its independence from Britain, Singapore, and Brunei were emerging as independent nations. Sukarno, the president of Indonesia, fought a war, uh, what he called confrontasi, confrontation against Malaysia, against the British who were still hanging around in Malaysia, kind of uh, holding the hands of the Malaysians as they got their independence set up. Um, so we actually joined the Brits and the Malaysians in defending uh, Malaysia against the Indonesian incursions. Um, so there has been ever since that, that was, you know, mid 1960s. So that's almost 60 years ago. There's been a residual kind of fear of, of what Indonesia might do. But when you look at Indonesia and you go to Indonesia, you realize that their defense force is actually, if when it's not consumed with internal domestic security concerns, it's focused northwards. It's mm. not focused southwards. Okay. So from an Australian security point of view, Indonesia has not really presented a significant challenge. In fact, arguably, it's part of the reason why we have such a small defence force is because we don't have contentious borders. We, we have got a honking big bloody moat, you know, around <laughs> Australia. We're an island, you know. So, I mean, you know, try your luck. Come, you know, give it a shot. <laughs> I mean, you know, what are you going to get? What are you going to find when you get to the northern coast of Australia? You're going to find very hardy Aboriginals who can, who are, you know, attuned culture, you know, for millennium, you know, 60,000 years have been living on the land and, and have adapted to harsh conditions. And if you ain't one of them, you're going to struggle to get water and, and food. Let me tell you, it's really tough. Um, but I mean, that's I'm being a little bit flippant there. But um, the point is that there is in common Australian, you know, um, sense of uh, consciousness an uneasiness about Indonesia, this very big country that's ten times our population, with so many, you know, it's it's more predominantly Muslim. It's a democracy, but it's a rambunctious one, and it's a fairly young democracy. Um, and we've had a number of points of contention, and it's been over of a live cattle trade, what I call beef, boats, spies, clemency, Timor, Papua and Jerusalem. So all of these issues that come up often triggered by domestic political issues in Australia. And we feel the need to lodge a protest in Jakarta, the capital of Indonesia, about an issue of concern in Australia. And it goes over like, you know, um, <laughs> you know, a proverbial. Right. <laughs> I'm thinking of something. I inappropriate you know, kind of sounds I understand. <laughs> in church. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, so the Indonesians, you know, many of them actually have studied in Australia. They're, they're, the, the elites all speak English fluently. Um, and we struggle with getting enough people in Australia who who can bring themselves to, to learn Indonesian, you know, mm. in contrast to uh, in the States where you have a lot of people who speak Spanish, say, um, or, or maybe French. Um, in Australia, you know, we're barely monolingual. We barely speak English. <laughs> I and mean, you can tell that by the way I'm speaking to you. I mean, what kind of English am I speaking? You know, it's, it's a weird dialect, right? <laughs> I'm being flippant. I, know, I, but I understand. I understand. It's, it's to make a point. Now, economically, um, East, uh, Indonesia has not featured very prominently in Australia's calculations, partly because we're kind of a competitor, but we don't trade that much with them. Well, we're trying to do more. Um, and we've got this new Indonesia-Australia Comprehensive Economic Partnership Agreement. So there's a lot of effort, a goodwill on both the Indonesian and Australian side to bolster trade because we know that trade helps deepen, helps provide ballast to the relationship. But one of the mainstays of the relationship has been really uh, about the security dimensions, police and the military. So we have an alumni of defence graduates from Australian programs uh, who are amongst the you know the most prominent uh, senior uh, figures military and political figures in the country so that's been an investment over time similarly with the police we're very heavily involved in that particularly over the last two decades since the bali bombings of 2002 uh, uh, when australia had an, uh, about i think it was about 80 australians i think it might be my numbers are probably a bit off uh, but Many, many Australians were killed in, in this tourist resort of Bali, uh, along with uh, more than 100 Indonesians. Um, and that led to a, an opportunity for Australia and Indonesia to kind of get let bygones be bygones over the, the East Timor crisis of 99 um, and, um, and now enable us to work closely together. Now, just wind back the clock a bit back to the East Timor crisis, because I think it's important to set in context. It, it is. Back it in is. 1975... Back in 1975, you know, this is uh, the height of the Cold War. Saigon had just fallen to the North Vietnamese. Um, uh, Phnom Penh was about to fall to to the to the communists, um, and uh, there was the Portuguese had had this leftist revolution in Portugal, and they let go of all their uh, uh, their colonies, including East Timor. And what was left in East Timor was a, um, a, a group called Fretilin that had Marxist con connections. And the Indonesians, who by this stage were under President Zahato, a US-aligned, uh, you know, a, an autocrat who was uh, US-aligned and sympathetic to Australia. Um, so, and, and the Australian Prime Minister at the time thought, well, you know, we don't want another mini Cuba on our doorstep, you know, Cuba was bad enough for you guys in the States. Um, we don't want a mini one between Indonesia and Australia. So there was a bit of a nudge, nudge, a wink, wink. Um, and, you know, Henry Kissinger was involved in a bit of shuttle diplomacy as well, of course, back then. And uh, lo and behold, President Suharto agrees he's going to take over Indonesia, but they do it in a ham-fisted way. And uh, five Australian journalists got killed in the mix, in the mix which got and the Indonesians denied that it ever happened, but there's clear evidence it did. And so what was supposed to be this gentleman's agreement that, you know, you guys just, you know, managed 
East Timor and, uh, you know, set up some kind of plebiscite, a bit like they'd done in West Papua in the early 1960s. West Papua, another piece of real estate, just north of East Timor, the western half of the Papua New Guinean island had been a leftover historical legacy when the Dutch fought a war of the war of independence against the Indonesians. They, they, when they gave independence in 1949, the Dutch held on to West Papua. Um, there's, there's a honking big gold mine there, right? It's a really rich resource place. They, so the Dutch wanted to hold on to this. Um, they, the, the Indonesians eventually persuaded them in 1960, early 1960s to let go. And then in 1969, they had this UN-endorsed uh, so-called act of free choice. And they got a, a handful of, uh, in the hundreds of leaders of the communities and basically said, you do want to join Indonesia, don't you? Don't you? Right. And of course, they all said, yes, of course we do. Right. So Indonesia took over West Papua. And I'm being a little bit, you know, I'm perhaps a little bit oversimplifying the matter there. But the point is that there was a sense that, well, you know, West Papua went to Indonesia. Why can't East Timor? Just because it was run by the Portuguese for 400 years and they're Catholic now and they've got a slightly different culture. Well, you know, who? it's a small part of, of the archipelago, really. It should be part of Indonesia. This is the thinking back in 1975, the heart mm -hmm. of the Cold War, right? Yeah. So, as I say, everyone thought that was a great idea until it wasn't a great idea anymore, uh, particularly when five Australian journalists got killed for basically witnessing the invasion. You know, um, and uh, so that then led to a really kind of tricky and problematic uh, uh, relationship between Australia and Indonesia for the next quarter of a century, from 1975 until 1998, when after the Asian financial crisis of 1997, the president of Indonesia, Suharto, had been in since the, the coup in 1965. Um, he he was toppled. His successor wants to change things, wants to be a bit more democratic. And at that point, the Australian Prime Minister at the time, John Howard, uh, writes to the president of Indonesia, a guy called uh, BJ Habibi, and says, look, um, what about, what about? have you thought about maybe having some kind of autonomy, you know, a vote for perhaps, can ask the Timorese if they'd like autonomy, rather, you know, because Australia wanted East Timor to stay part of Indonesia, but we, we just felt that they weren't managing it very well. Anyway, he was... Um, um, a bit of a taciturn guy, and he, he reacted fairly strongly, and he decided, no, 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 no. No, it's either you're in or you're out. You can, mm -hmm. And they vote for that, and we'll do that as soon as we can. So lo and behold, they had a, a, a plebiscite. The Indonesian military really didn't want that to happen. They helped foster a bunch of militias who went on a rampage when the, when the plebiscite went against the Indonesian wishes, um, and then Australia was called in. So Australia was called in. We were reluctant, you know, one fellow, a guy called Clinton Fernandez, uh, um, an academic at, uh, at the University of New South Wales, called it the reluctant saviour. Um, and there's a book I'm reviewing at the moment about the, the official history of the intervention in his team or by Professor Craig Stockings. And he called it born of fire and ash because essentially the place got absolutely trashed right. in September 1999, right? Absolutely trashed. So Australia goes in, we're the reluctant saviour, um, and uh, and the Indonesians are deeply resentful at what we've done. But it's like, hang on, guys, you know, yeah, 
chicken or egg here. What happened? You know, we, we this isn't because of us. You guys made some calls and then you handled it pretty poorly. Yeah. Um, so, and we didn't want this to happen. Um, so anyway, so we have had a very prickly relationship over the years. Um, it, and we've had, uh, it's a bit like a game of snakes and ladders with Indonesia. So we make some incremental progress. So we've, we've made progress since then with the silver lining of the, the, the terrible catastrophe of the Bali bombings was the opportunity for us to collaborate on tracking down the terrorists. So that was great, very productive. And then we helped them. The, there was the Indian Ocean tsunami in 04 or 05 um, and Australia offered help and we helped rehabilitate uh, Aceh, this province on the northwestern tip of, of Sumatra, the northwestern part of, of Indonesia, jutting out into the Indian Ocean. Mm-hmm. Um, and the silver lining of that was that, well, it helped, you know, we, we were kind of, they realised that we weren't real ogres. We're just, as I say, we might be clod hopping, but we're not <laughs> Ill, Ill, ill-intentioned. <laughs> so we're now in a situation where Indonesia is actually dealing with uh, a resurgent China that is throwing its weight around on the northern fringes of Indonesia's territory, maritime territory in the South China Sea. Sure. And they are really uncomfortable with what China is doing. And this is where there's a overlap now of Australia's interests and Indonesia's interests that is seeing the prospect for deeper collaboration and enhanced coordination of of security dimensions and other dimensions of our bilateral relationship that's also uh, a space for potentially greater US involvement as well. Uh, I'd like to actually get a... Oh, now we didn't talk about the jihadis. Uh, well, let me get there. Uh, actually, I do want to follow up on that towards a, a yeah, little bit later yeah. in the show, but that is definitely an important important topic. Uh, Australia yeah. has had internal challenges with some of these uh, Salafist jihadis, uh, uh, sadly. Uh, so from your perspective, yeah. and th- I could just maybe ask you to do three to four minutes on this, uh, as you look out across the Indian Ocean from Australia's west coast, uh, do you have any concerns for security uh, economics or politics around the Indian Ocean periphery? I, I know you mentioned... Uh, the partnership with uh, with India, uh, uh, clearly a natural uh, ally as part of the Quad uh, discussions, uh, but there are those who would caution that India, under a, a nationalist political party uh, uh, led by Modi, uh, not maybe quite as reliable as one would hope. And an example of that is that India is still buying Russian oil uh, filling Russia's coffers as they continue to prosecute their their war aims in Ukraine. So, how, how does Australia kind of view broadly the the Indian Ocean? Uh, it's a big body of water. Uh, there's a lot of space yeah, between huge. Western Australia and and the African continent, for instance, but also Southern uh, Asia uh, on the north side of the Indian Ocean. Uh, just a few minutes on that, if you could, uh, John. Sure. So, for us, uh, the trade routes of the Indian Ocean are critical. So, we have traditionally, uh, back in the old day. Uh, you know, back in the 19th century, the the line through the Suez Canal, which opened in 1867, was the lifeline, if you like. It was the main trading route to Europe. Um, so we you know, traded east to America uh, and west, northwest to Europe via across the Indian Ocean via the Suez Canal through the Mediterranean. Um, that line of communication remains critical for everybody. Uh, it's still very important to Australia. And that's one of the reasons why the Royal Australian Navy is often operating in in uh, in uh, alongside U.S. task groups in and around uh, the Horn of Africa, uh, the Persian Gulf, 
uh, the Strait of, the, uh, of Hormuz and places like that, recognising the significance of the trade and the uh, oil flow and the, and the trade flow through that and through the Red and Red Sea as well. Um, so we've a significant investment in that space and we've, we've played it there ever since the 1870s, really. Australia has always seen that part of the world as it's something we have a bit of a stake in. Um, but when, when it comes to West Af East Africa, the western coast of the Indian Ocean, Australia has a considerable uh, investment in mineral projects because we're pretty good at mining. And we've done a lot of that in Australia. We, do, we dig a lot of things up, iron ore, coal, uh, and things like that we dig up a lot of. And we have corporations that do a fair bit of that in Africa. So we've got a stake there in, the, in East Africa. And we're obviously getting a bit squeezed by the Chinese there, mm -hmm. uh, who are really working, you know, both ends of the, uh, of the candle, if you like, burning both ends of the candle to establish themselves there, to consolidate their uh, economic uh, uh, toeholds there and, and consolidate their interests in East Africa uh, as well as West Africa. When it comes to India, though, of course, there's the interminable di di you know, dispute between India and Pakistan. And Australia's struggled, much with the US as well, struggled to maintain a positive relationship with Pakistan and India. But it's devilishly difficult to do that at the same time because they are just kind of inveterate you know, uh, opponents of each other. Um, makes it very, very difficult. And of course, they're both nuclear-armed powers. The Modi challenge is an interesting one because um, there is a, a, an unease in certain circles about um, the uh, apparent erosion of uh, inclusiveness and political openness inside India. Uh, and that is a worrying development. But let's not forget, you know, uh, none of us, none of our democracies are perfect. Right, uh, right. Certainly, Australia's <laughs> isn't, and of course, we get uh, uh, we get a lot of news from the US as well. So, you know, I don't think any of us can go around throwing stones in glass houses, to be mm. quite honest. Yeah. Um, but the challenge for India is that they have relied militarily for Russian equipment to be the to be the counterbalance against China. And they've been, you know, they've suffered attacks from China just in the last 18 months or so along the right. in the Himalayas on the line of actual control. So they're in a real conundrum. They want to keep China in check. Most of their armed forces, going back to the days of the Cold War, have Russian or Soviet style equipment. They're trying to wean themselves off that, but that's hard to do quickly. Um, and and they're trying not to burn their bridges with Russia. Uh, and uh, and they're trying to stay in good with, with the West as well. So uh, I don't envy them at all. They're in a really tricky spot. Sure. That, 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 that is a great summary. And if you think about it, uh, the Belt and Road Initiative on China's part, uh, the Belt part is the, is the maritime sea trade uh, routes, uh, you know, creating ports uh, all all around, uh, you know, the trade routes from Western China over to uh, to Europe. Uh, gu uh, yeah. gu Gwadar part, Gwadar port in uh, mm. in Pakistan, and the Hamba and Toto yep. port in Sri Lanka are now both yep. owned and operated by China. Uh, so what we're really seeing is the Belt side on the on the maritime side, and then the road side through Central Asia. Uh, the the whole design of that economic investment on China's part is to box out and isolate India. <laughs> so India, as you say, I'm has some very that, significant challenges. <laughs> I'm shocked to hear you say that. <laughs> <laughs> 
No, no, India's India's up against it. I mean, it's one of the reasons why they're reaching out to the Quad. Yeah, the Quad matters more to India than ever before. Yeah, because they're they're getting squeezed, and sure. the, you know, it, Russia is no not as reliable as it was, <laughs> and they're trying to try and keep in good there by buying that oil from Russia, which of course the country still needs. I mean, it's it's you know it's got 1.4 billion people uh, to feed and clothe and and look after, um, but. The China challenge is enormous for India, yeah. although the demographics would suggest that India's, in the long run, got better prospects. Yeah. Uh, John, we have to take just a, a quick break uh, to recognize our sponsor, the Cybersecurity Summit. Uh, we'll be back in just a moment. National Security This Week is sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit. The Cybersecurity Summit brings together cyber experts from industry, academia, and all levels of government to explore challenges, solutions, and opportunities in the cyber arena. The three-day summit includes speakers, workshops, discussions about advancing a cyber career, and keynote addresses by top leaders from across the cyber community. Learn more at cybersecuritysummit.org. And we're back with Dr. John Blackson, and we're talking about Australia's national security challenges. Uh, John, if, let's follow up a little bit more on, on the China issue. Um, I, I know that China has really been levying some pretty significant uh, political and economic pressures on Australia for a few years now. Uh, could you describe for us uh, what, what it's been like in trying to deal directly with China and the pressures that Australia has been under? So Australia has been subject to... Uh, political interference, and that's been most notable. Uh, a few years ago, there was a senator um, in uh, one of our senators, and our Senate is similar to the United States. We have an equal number of senators per state, but we have 12 senators per state because we've only got six states and two territories uh, as opposed to two senators. Anyway, one of our senators from New South Wales, the largest by population, the state with the largest population in Australia, uh, got bought off. And he got caught out because he was mouthing um, PRC, People's Republic of China, talking points about the South China Sea, which were in contravention to the party, political party platforms uh, points on that issue that, uh, for the party that he belonged to, the Labor Party of Australia. Um, anyway, that then led to there was other things happening. There were cyber attacks happening. There was there was a reaction in the Australian body politic on both sides of the aisle, um, on centre left and centre right. There was a sense of no, this is enough. We've got to we've got to change the dynamics here, um, and so um, that led to some legislation being introduced that restricted. Uh, the ability for uh, China and others to interfere politically in domestic politics, uh, more transparency for funding and for uh, resources that are allocated to uh, political campaigns and things like that. Um, and of course, the situation started to get worse and worse over time because we then blocked the sale of Huawei technology in Australia for good reason, you know, they've got their ability to uh, operate and then hoover up, you know, vacuum up information from Australia uh, for exploitation and, and then use against us uh, was, well, the risk was just too great. Mm -hmm. um, and the, there was a consensus in government once the intelligence community briefed the both sides of parliament that uh, this was dangerous, they all agreed, that generated a reaction. And then of course we saw eventually Australia being slapped with sanctions 
$20 billion worth of sanctions, particularly when our foreign minister, Maurice Payne at the time, basically called out China on COVID and said, come on, let's have an independent investigation. Uh, well, that was above and beyond beyond the pale. You know? Now, Maurice Payne, the foreign minister, probably could have handled that a bit more delicately. <laughs> As I say, we're a, bit, we're, we're a bunch of clod hoppers. We're, <laughs> we're, we're WYSIWYG people, you know. Uh, <laughs> what you see is what you get. Um, and uh, so the Chinese took a front, they, and they decided to uh, try and teach us a lesson um, uh, by imposing these sanctions on, on, on coal, on uh, wine, on lobsters, on barley, on wheat, and other things that we sell in by the truckload to China, right? Um, we've been money, making money hand over fist uh, because the Chinese love what we do. And now, interestingly enough, the thing, the, 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 it didn't work. Uh, President Xi wanted to punish Australia, but guess what? We managed to find other ways because, you know, the bottom line is that while President Xi might like to think he's, he, he exercises command, a command economy in China, the global economy is not a command economy. There's yeah. supply, there's demand, there's, there's bull markets, there's, there's, you know, there's bear markets, there's feasts, there's famine, there's droughts, there's floods, and there's changing trends. So, you know, if you don't want to buy our barley, barley from Australia, okay, buy it from, I don't know, Argentina. Uh, guess what? The market that that barley was going to go to all of a sudden opens up, and then we can sell our barley there. Yep. So it's like it was a, it was just it was it was nugatory. And by the way, our trade with China went up anyway, despite <laughs> all of this. So it's like, and now eventually we're seeing now China a post with G backing off of the wolf warrior diplomacy rhetorically, at least if not in substance. Uh, we're seeing a winding back, at least the talk of the winding back of this of these sanctions. So we'll see how that goes in the next little while. But what we've seen is, you know, a real sense and a growing sense in Australia, and it, we've seen this with the, the, the industrial scale cyber attacks on, on, um, on uh, and a range of corporations, on government entities. My university has been subject to multiple attacks. Thankfully, our security measures have ratcheted up. But what we've got is a much greater awareness of the cyber challenges today than ever before. We've gone from being a web-enabled society to a web-dependent society to a web-vulnerable society, and now increasingly a web-savvy one. And that's a good thing. Um, and you know, the irony is, of course, that China, behind its great firewall, um, well, likes to operate in our domain, but it doesn't let us operate in theirs. So mm. everybody loves a good set of double standards, I guess, <laughs> but China is masterful at exercising it. So that's the the kind of the political and economic side of things. Uh, I want to make sure we talk about the security side, uh, if we could, just a, just a few minutes, because you sort of touched on it a little bit uh, earlier. Uh, but Australia's security situation vis-a-vis uh, -vis China, how does Australia view China's activities in, say, the South China Sea or the Western Pacific more generally? As we know, uh, China recently crafted an agreement with the Solomon Islands uh, that has vexed Washington, D.C., frankly. It's probably a bit of a concern for uh, for folks down in Australia as well. Yeah. Uh, for the, from the U.S. perspective, it's yeah. frankly a direct competition for influence between the United States and China over a part of the world that has been in the U.S. camp since World War II. Uh, how, how does Australia view these Bingo. recent developments? 
So this has been part of the awakening, if you like, the kind of greater consciousness of the competition we're facing. And I, I, I think there's a point of reference that's useful. You, if you remember back in 1999, two Chinese colonels put out this book called Unrestricted Warfare, mm -hmm. right? And at the time, people thought, oh, come on, isn't that a bit over the top? You know, unrestricted warfare, really? Who are you talking about? Uh, anyway, it, it, it got buried for a while. But when you think of it, I've gone back and looked at it and thought about it and thought, dang, that's exactly what's been going on. Now, we, we've got, we got hung up on the word warfare because when we think about warfare, we think about kinetic effects, yep. you know, artillery, missiles, you know, uh, guns, people getting shot. The Chinese approach is very different. Um, and I think because they talk about media warfare, political warfare, uh, legal warfare, right? Now, I think if that's all been going on, if you, if you shift away from thinking about unrestricted warfare and put in the word competition instead of warfare, you think about this as unrestricted competition. That's what we're facing. Yeah. We're facing unrestricted, the gloves are off, but it's competition. People aren't getting shot. Ships aren't getting sunk, but it's pretty darn close, right? It's close, but not quite. And and they're pushing right up to the envelope. And that's been happening with the pressure. The, this is, gets back to my, what a point I made at the start about uh, uh, the great power contestation, looming environmental catastrophe, and the governance challenges. The governance challenges includes brown paper bags stuffed with money buying influence, right? That's 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 corruption that's a governance problem yep. and when australia tries to influence you know we like in the us we're constrained by you know our liberal democratic laws that preclude us from freaking stuffing paper bags full of money right. and handing it under the table yep. which is like so we've tied our hands behind one back and the other guy's just handing him over you know hand over fist um so this is this is the world we're operating in it is unrestricted and it's extremely competitive and it's an understandable competition on one level because I like to my, to my mind, there's a metaphor that works for me. And that is that you think about the British empire when it was, when Sir Francis Drake, you know, sailed the ocean blue in the 1700s or 1600s, um, he didn't have a manifesto to conquer the world. Right. <laughs> it happened incrementally, right? It happened because of the industrial revolution where they needed markets and they needed raw materials for their cotton mills and their uh, their factories and they needed market you know they, they needed somebody to buy their stuff off them and they needed to buy off them the raw materials to make the factories work right and that then led to desire to provide security for you know east india companies and uh, and then governance for them and guess what to fight wars to protect them uh, and lo and behold, you have the opium wars in China, you have the India, the wars in India, you have the wars of, you know, I mean, the colonization of, of North America, the United States and Australia. I mean, you know, we're all we're all part of it, really. We're yep. all we're all a manifestation of it. But the point is that that's OK, John, that's a quaint historical parallel. The point is that if we think about what China is doing now, it's a kind of condensed and accelerated version of that because they are. They've been growing like topsy-turvy. They've needed raw materials and they've needed markets and they've needed investment. And then they've got, so they've gone to East Coast of Africa. They've established mines. They've established roads, bridges, helped with governance. And then they felt the need to protect it. 
So what? You need security elements. A lot of them are hired companies. So there's a degree of plausible deniability about it being the state doing it, even though the state-owned enterprise is doing it. But, you know, there's this half-arms-length removed kind of process from governance. But that's, you know, it, that's on one level a perfectly understandable one. The problem, though, for us is that it's from a... A, a government that's increasingly authoritarian. And while we had kind of hoped that its, it's Marxist communist uh, trappings would fall by the wayside as they uh, fell in love with, with capitalism, um, that just hasn't happened. Uh, and Xi has reversed course. Xi yes. is kind of, you know, the hide and bide of Deng Xiaoping's era, the hide, hide your strengths and bide your time. Well, they're not hiding and biding anymore. They're out and about and they're, they're confronting Australian vessels, Australian uh, warships in the South China Sea. Conduct, we don't call them freedom and navigation operations, but it's essentially pretty much what we do. We just don't call them that because the US takes a slightly different approach uh, for a couple of legal reasons. Um, and also the fact is the United States is bigger. You guys can do it. We can't afford to wear it. We're a small to middle power. Um, but um, so there's that, but there's also the encroachment in the South, in the South Pacific, Solomon Islands being a classic. And of course, the uh, the arbitrary and capricious nature of its engagement with Australia over trade, over politics, over cyber attacks and the like. There's a sense that we actually, and then got back that up with the fact that the, the, the People's Liberation Army, Navy, Army and Air Force have been growing like topsy-turvy and they've been increasingly getting into this idea of jointery, of cyber, and of space. Now, these are the domains that, you know, they're cutting edge concepts in Western military thinking, um, but they are also being closely paralleled in China. So you think, okay, so why are you doing this, China? Who's the threat? Because Japan never did it when it was in the, on the rise. Remember in the 1970s, 80s, 90s, everyone thought China was, might be a threat. China, uh, Japan might have been a threat because it was economically so powerful. Of course, Japan never invested in that kind of, because it wasn't trying to upset the apple cart. Right. It was quite happy with the order. China is not happy with the order. Sure. It wants to upset the apple cart. And, of course, Australia is hugely invested in its relationship with the United States. We have more foreign direct investment from you guys than anyone else. But, but even money aside, the bottom line is, look, we're pretty simple people. I know we barely speak English, but it is what one of the things we have in common. And most of us don't really want to learn Mandarin. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, very briefly for our audience, you're listening to National Security This Week on KYMN Radio, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Dr. John Blacksland, and we're discussing Australian national security concerns and opportunities. We're sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit, and you can learn more at www.cybersecuritysummit.org. Uh, so, Dr. Blacksland, uh, on that point, uh, Australia has been hosting U.S. military forces for many years now. The U.S. Marine Corps rotates yep. Marines to Australia for combined training on a regular basis. Uh, Australia has also, as you mentioned, routinely supported crisis operations in the Middle East, uh, usually in direct partnership with the United States. Uh, how important yeah. is the U.S.-Australia security partnership to Australian national security interests? And maybe you could address a little bit more of the details of the AUKUS agreement that you mentioned earlier in the show. Yeah, so Australia, you know, for the first half of the 20th century, we looked to Britain as part of for protection. Uh in 19, December 1941 through to February 1942, that got completely flipped on its head. Uh, and John Curtin, the Prime Minister of Australia, basically declared that he looked to the United States 
free of pangs of, of uh, emotional attachment to the, to the United Kingdom, we look to the United States to help us. Now, we helped ourselves too. Um, we had an army in 19, January 1943 that had 14 divisions. Out of a population of seven and a half million people, we raised 14 divisions. Uh, and, 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 and we'd fought, you know, we had uh, four divisions fighting in the Middle East. Uh, and then we had uh, most of those divisions rotated through the fighting in the Pacific theater. So we pulled our weight, um, but we couldn't do it without the United States. And so, you know, uh, Eisenhower is known to have uh, advised when he was the chief of staff at the Pentagon that Australia was useful as a base from which to uh, push back uh, against the, the Japanese thrust in, in, in the middle of the war. So MacArthur came south. Uh, we then established a relationship with the United States from that time. You know, the first Marine Division, its core song, its song is Waltzy Matilda. Its badge is the Southern Cross. The connection with Australia is profound. Um, and But that's not enough. We then had the ANZUS Treaty signed in 1951 in the middle of the Korean War, when Australia was one of the first countries to uh, contribute forces alongside the U.S., forces as part of the UN command in the defense of South Korea. Um, and But even then, the, the ANZUS Alliance is a 800-word essay that says very little. It's not NATO. There's no NATO headquarters. There's no like command structure. There's an agreement to consult. But what there is, is a period of 70 years of deepening security ties between our two countries that were one strand at a time. The Vietnam War reinforced this, the establishment of the joint facility at Pine Gap reinforced this, the intelligence ties that go back to the Second World War, but that were the trust and the bonds from those days were then pursued in the, during the Cold War and deepened and broadened. And then, so we then got to the point where, you know, at the start of this millennium, um, Australia had led this mission to East Timor, um, and I got to be posted to Washington as an exchange officer in DIA, one of the few people it trusted to be inside the skiff. Um, a manifestation of a deepening, broadening set of relationships that uh, happen incrementally over more than my lifetime. Right? Um, but interestingly enough, of course, there were no, after World War II, there were no US forces based, had bases in, 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 in Australia. In fact, very interesting, we kind of got a little bit nervous because you guys packed up your bongos and you left and you said, well, see you later. It was nice, Australia, but we're off to Japan and, and, and we don't really care that much and, and the Philippines and look, look after yourselves and go back to the Brits. Then, of course, Korea happened, then Vietnam. Things changed, but we never had a permanent presence of US forces, unlike in Germany, unlike in Britain unlike uh, France until the 1960s and unlike Korea and Japan. So for us and, and the Philippines until you got kicked out of Clark and Subic, um, for us, the relationship with the United States is uh, close, but not as close as you might have thought because we didn't have those intimate ties of a, of a permanent that did come with a permanent presence. Um, so we had to work that relationship. And of course, for the last two decades, we've worked a particularly through our engagement alongside the United States in Afghanistan and Iraq and across the Middle East and now in the Pacific as well. So the presence of the Marines is uh, consequential, but 
numerically not that consequential. Yeah. What there is, though, across Australia is the, the goodwill in Australia, the infrastructure in Australia, and the compatibility and the interoperability that's been that's evolved over the last 70 years to the point where, you know, we're almost plug and play. You, you know, an Australian piece of kit and a US piece of kit, you can work together, we understand each other. You know, there's a thing called, a, 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 a friend of mine um, said this to me, he said, John, it's interoperability between the ears. And I thought <laughs> that's a really powerful thing to say because it's, it's not just written down, it's about how you think and how you work. Yeah. And on that level, we've, with that's where we are so very briefly so we have about nine minutes left uh, for our show uh could you just talk a little bit more about the AUKUS agreement the australia uk us agreement i know mm. it's uh, sort of focused on uh sort of i guess kind of a technology development submarines were sort of uh, a main part of that is there any else anything else to the AUKUS agreement that's really critical for us to know yes yeah, so nuclear propulsion is is the bedrock of what's going on but a resilience uh missile production, weapons production, ammunition stocks. Uh, the, the Ukraine war has demonstrated we both need to up our game. Yeah. Uh, we need to be in a position to be much more robustly postured. Uh, one of the problems back in 1942, when we needed help, we wanted to buy you know, uh, uh, Mustangs, we wanted to buy Shermans, we wanted to buy kit that you guys had, but you guys needed it at the same time. <laughs> so. You know, so we couldn't, we had to build our own. Now, we actually did okay in the end. But the point is that you don't want to, when the crunch time comes, everybody's going to be in demand. So you've got to be preparing for, you know, we've got to move away from just in time to just in case. And that's that's part of the transformation of AUKUS. Um, AUKUS is also about nuclear propulsion is really important for Australia. If you want to move a submarine from, any port to any other port, you can't do it submerged. And nowadays, with persistent AI and surveillance and sophisticated uh, 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 persistent surveillance, you are detectable. As soon as you snorkel, you are detectable. So, and if you lose your stealth, you might as well pack up it and go home, right? There's no, you, you aren't useful if you're not stealthy. So for Australia, nuclear propulsion re- restores stealth. Um, and it gives us range, it gives us endurance, it gives us speed. And for a population like ours, where you can actually have, you know, six or eight boats do what 12 boats or 14 boats can do, that's a big plus. Of course, the time frame is long, so we've got to try and be clever about how we work with the UK and the US to uh, build the capability in Australia, collaborate effectively in the meantime, and get us somewhere near there in the, in the, in the, in the short to medium term. But beyond this, I think there's an important dimension. And I mentioned, you know, ANZUS being an 800-word essay. One of the things that's worried Australia for a long time, we've got this kind of schizophrenic fear of abandonment and fear of entrapment. The fear of abandonment, it goes back to 1942, right? Uh, it's it's that kind of fear of being left out there and uh, out to hang, hang out to dry. Um, for us, AUKUS is a mechanism that goes some way to add more structure, more mechanisms that tie our countries together. And that is seen uh, as a good thing for Australian security. And look, in part, I think it also goes some way to uh, reassure the United States that we're serious about our partnership with them uh, and with the United Kingdom. Um, And conversely, it's about keeping the United States engaged in Australia 
because I think there is broadly speaking a recognition that Australia is of importance from a national security point of view for US interests globally. Absolutely. But there may be in, in some elements a degree of a slightly uh, isolationist mindset in certain political circles. And Australia is pretty keen to demonstrate our bona fides, our goodwill and our intention to remain a positive influence alongside the United States in the Indo-Pacific probably for generations to come. And and I should emphasize for our listeners that this uh, this decision, this AUKUS agreement, this technology on the nuclear propulsion side for submarines, this is a significant financial commitment mm. that Australia is making as part of this agreement. Yeah. And, and a strategic one. I mean, we're talking 50 years uh, going into the future uh, of commitment to this kind of uh, technology uh, base. Uh, so, John, yeah, it's a gamble. Yes. It's a gamble, but it's, it's, it's basically based on a faith in the, the depth and the breadth of the ties between our countries that we see as being enduring. Yeah. Uh, so, John, we have just about five minutes left. I know you have a new book coming out. Uh, the title is mm. Revealing Secrets. Uh, it's about SIGINT and cyber. Can you tell us a little bit about that book? So, I um, yeah, it's a, it's a basically, I go back to briefly to ancient times to explain cryptography the origins because a lot of the principles still apply mm -hmm. uh, in 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 SIGINT. so i then look at um, how australia's SIGINT is influenced by the us and the uk experience of SIGINT. Uh, i go a little bit back to the us civil war to the first world war uh, the british experience of empire and 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 talk about the first world war and then focus more on the second world war and the intelligence architecture that emerges uh, as uh, with the with the breaking of Enigma and the Purple, um, the, uh, the the ultra secret and 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 the ability to uh, um, decipher and decrypt and de, uh, uh, you know work work out the enemy's plans uh, through SIGINT, um, and how that's laid the foundation for the post-war architecture, the trusted ties between our countries that have endured that have stood the test of time. Uh, and that have helped us actually manage the transition from the analog era to the digital era. Our first computers in Australia were IBM computers that came with MacArthur's Southwest Pacific Area Command. Um, after the war, we got more IBMs uh, and we, we kind of then went into Cray computers like everybody else did. Um, but this was, the, this was also the hearth for uh, the digital era. It was the hearth for cyber security. And so in Australia, the Defence Signals Bureau, as it was formed in 1947, became what is now the Australian Signals Directorate. Even so, this, the title is kind of, it's a bit of a misnomer because it doesn't really accurately describe what it does. But what we've seen now is with the Australian Cyber Security Centre, uh, this introspective bunch of geeks who have been looking at, you know, <laughs> at uh, the radio frequency spectrum and, and ones and zeros and computers have all of a sudden had to be a bit more extroverted and reach out to the public and explain to people, hey, you need to watch your cybersecurity yeah. to schools, to industries, civil society organizations. So the book is walking through that journey, explaining how Australia, its own SIGINT and cyber security domain emerged and how intimately it's connected with its Anglosphere partners. 
So that's going to be a great book. And it's, you know, I think you and I are both career professional intelligence uh, officers. I think it's really important mm. for us to understand kind of the foundations of intelligence to understand kind of where we're going in the future, uh, especially considering all the, the modern challenges we have. Uh, we just have about two minutes. Yeah, go, please go ahead. Well, I was just going to say there's also the need to educate our people about the importance of this function. That's this true. This is not a nice to have, it's a must have function. Yeah. And most people have not got the faintest clue how it works or why we have it. Right. And that's what I'm trying to do. Yep. Uh, so, John, I try to give my guests the final word. Uh, we have just a couple minutes left. Uh, what haven't I asked you today that I should have? Or are there any issues that are really important to Australia that we should, uh, you just want to comment on in, in the last uh, minute or so that we have? So there are a lot of security challenges in our neighbourhood, and we, Australia and the United States, really need to work collaboratively, uh, in partic particularly in the Pacific. We've got the Pacific Partnership that uh, President Biden signed off on. Um, we've got challenges. We've got a lot of competition. We need to be thinking long-term about how we respond to that. It's got to be more than just military. It's got to be about economic. It's got to be about felt needs. And in the Pacific, that's about climate change. Um, and also, there's other ones in the region like Myanmar. I think collaboratively, you know, we can do more uh, to to address challenges. We've been distracted to a certain extent by the great power issues, but there are creative ways I think we can actually help bring around. A lot of countries like in Southeast Asia who are kind of hands off and don't want to buy in on the great power conflict and contestation, I think there's a way of engaging those countries on issues important to them that will help them understand why we are their partner of choice on issues in the Pacific, in Southeast Asia and beyond. And that requires imagination. It requires a bit of uh, restraint, a bit of uh, self-awareness, but also a sense of history and a sense of perspective. And that's where I think you and I can make a contribution. So that's a great wrap-up, John. There was there, Unfortunately, there were a whole bunch of topics we didn't get a chance to get to today. Yeah. Uh, this hour-long show goes by just like that. It uh, absolutely amazes me every single week. Uh, thank you so much for, for joining us today, Dr. John Blacksland. Uh, it, it is late. It is midnight now for you, I guess, uh, down in Australia. So mm -hmm. thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on the show, John. So we've come to the end of our show. Uh, this closes this week's edition of National Security This Week. I'm your host, John Olson. Uh, thank you for joining us today. I look forward to sharing time with you again next Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. Thank you for listening to National Security This Week here on KYMN Radio. Have a great finish to week, everybody. Take care. You've been listening to National Security This Week, a weekly look at issues affecting America's security concerns with host John Olson. It's brought to you by the Cybersecurity Summit. Check their website, cybersecuritysummit.org, for a listing of their upcoming webinar series.